Chapter 71. I would have to be a much better storyteller than I am, I think, to tell you how it was for Peter during the five years he spent at the top of the needle. He ate, he slept, he looked out the window, which gave him a view of the west of the city. He exercised morning and noon and evening. He dreamed his dreams of freedom. In the summer, his apartment sweltered. In the winter, it froze. During the second winter, he caught a bad case of the grip, which almost killed him. Peter lay feverishly coughing under a thin blanket on his bed. At first, he was only afraid he would lapse into delirium and rave about the rope that was hidden in a neat coil under two of the stone blocks on the east side of his bedroom. As his fever grew worse, the rope he had woven with the tiny dollhouse loom came to seem less important because he began to think he would die. Beeson and his lesser warders were convinced of it. They had, in fact, begun to wager on when it would happen. One night, about a week after the onset of his fever, while the wind raged blackishly outside and the temperature dropped down to zero, Rowland appeared to Peter in a dream. Peter was convinced that Rowland had come to take him to the far fields. I'm ready, Da, he cried. In his delirium, he didn't know if he had spoken aloud or only in his mind. I'm ready to go. You'll not be dying yet, his father said in his dream or vision, or whatever it was. <laughs> You've much to do, Peter. Father, Peter shrieked. His voice was powerful, and below him the warders, and Beeson included, quailed, thinking that Peter must be seeing the smoke murder ghost of King Rowland come to take Peter's soul to hell. They made no more wagers that night. In fact, one of them went to Church of the Great Gods the very next day, and embraced his religion again, and eventually became a priest. This man's name was Curin, and I may tell you a story of him another time. Peter really was seeing a ghost in a way, although whether it was the actual shade of his father or only a ghost born in his fever-struck brain, I cannot say. His voice lapsed into a mutter, and the warders did not hear the rest. It's so cold, and I am so hot. My poor boy, his glimmering father said, you've had hard trials, and there are more of them ahead, I think. But Dennis will know. Know what? Peter gasped. His eyes were red, but his forehead was as pale as a wax candle. Dennis will know where the sleepwalker goes, his father whispered, and was gone. Peter lapsed into a faint that quickly became a deep, sound sleep. In that sleep, his fever broke. The boy who had made it his practice over the last year to do 60 push-ups and 100 sit-ups each day, woke the next morning too weak to even get out of bed. But he was lucid again. Beeson and the lesser warders were disappointed. But after not that night, they always treated Peter with a kind of awe and took care never to get too close to him, which of course made his job that much easier. All that is easy enough to tell in a tale, though it would be no doubt better if I could say for sure that the ghost was there or that it was not. But like other matters on the larger tale, you'll have to make up your own mind about it, I suppose. But how am I to tell you about Peter's endless drudging work at the tiny loom? That tale is beyond me. All the hours spent, sometimes with frosty breath, pluming from his mouth and nose, and sometimes with sweat running down his face, always in fear of discovery, all those long hours alone. Nothing, nothing but long thoughts, almost absurd hopes to fill them. 
I can tell you some things, and I will, but to convey such hours and days of slow time is impossible for me. Might be impossible for anyone except one of the great storytellers whose race has long vanished. Perhaps the only thing that even vaguely suggests how much time Peter spent in those two rooms was his beard. When he came in, it was only a shadow on his cheeks and a smudge under his nose, a boy's beard. In the 1,825 days which followed, it grew long and luxuriant. By the end, it reached the middle of his chest, and although he was 21, it was shot with gray. The only place it did not grow was along the length of the jagged scar left by Beeson's thumbnail. Peter dared pluck only five threads from each napkin the first year, 15 threads each day. He kept them under his mattress, and at the end of each week, he had 105. In our measure, each thread was about 20 inches long. He wove the first batch a week after he received the dollhouse. Working carefully with the room loom, using it was not easy at 17 as it had been at five. His fingers had grown and the loom was had not. Also, he was horribly nervous. If one of the warders caught him at his work, he could tell him he was using the loom to weave errant threads from the old napkins for his own amusement, if they believed it, and if the loom worked. He wasn't sure that it would until he saw the first slim cable perfectly woven emerging from the loom's far end. Then, when Peter saw this, his nervousness abated somewhat. He was able to weave a little faster, feeding the threads in, tugging them to keep them straight, operating a foot pedal with his thumb. The loom squeaked a little at first, but the old grease soon limbered up, and it ran as perfectly as it had when he was a child. But the cable was terribly thin, not even a quarter of an inch through the center. Peter tied off the ends and tugged the ex experimentally. It held, but he was, a, he was little encouraged. It was stronger than it looked, and he thought it should be strong. They were royal napkins, after all, woven from the finest cotton thread in the land, and he had woven tightly. He pulled harder, trying to guess how many pounds of strain he was putting on the slim cotton cable. He pulled even harder, the rope still held, and he felt more hope come stealing into his heart. He found himself thinking about Yosef. It had been Yosef, head of the stables, who told him about that mysterious and terrible thing called breaking strain. It was high summer, and they had been watching huge Andean oxen pull stone blocks for the plaza of the new market. A sweating, cursy drover was astride each ox's neck. Peter had then been no more than eleven, and he thought it better than a circus. Yosef pointed out that each ox wore a heavy leather harness. The chains were put um, were put to pull the dressed blocks of stone were attached to the harness, one on each side of the animal's neck. Yosef told him the cutters had to make a careful estimate of just how much each block of stone weighed because if the blocks were too heavy, the oxen might hurt themselves trying to pull them. Peter said that wasn't even a question, because it seemed obvious to him. He felt sorry for the oxen dragging those great blocks of rock. Nay, Yosef said. He lit a cigarette made a, made of corn shuck, almost burning off the end of his nose, and drew deeply and contentedly. He always liked the young prince's company. Nay, oxen aren't stupid. People only think them so because they are large and tame and helpful. It says more about the people than about the oxen, if you ask me. 
but leave that behind and leave that behind. If an ox can pull a block, he'll pull it. If he can't, why, he'll try twice and then stand with his head down. He'll stand so even a bad master whips him, whips his hide to ribbons. Oxen look stupid, but they ain't. Not a bit. Then why do the cutters have to guess at the weight of the blocks they cut if the oxen knows what he can pull and what he can't? Taint the blocks, it's the chains. Yosef pointed to one of the oxen, which was dragging a block that looked to Peter almost as big as a small house. The ox's head was down, his eyes fixed patiently ahead as his drover sat astride it and guided it with the little taps of his stick. At the end of the double length of chain, the block moved slowly along, gouging a furrow in the earth. It was so deep that a small child would need to work to climb out of it. If an ox can pull a block, he will. But an ox don't know nothing about chains and about the breaking strain. What's that? So put a thing under enough of a tug, it'll snap, Yosef said. If yonder chains were to snap, they'd fly around something terrible. You wouldn't want to be a witness to what can happen if a heavy chain lets go when it's under such a tug as those oxen can put on it. It's apt to fly anywhere, backwards mostly, apt to hit the drover and tear him apart or cut the legs from under the beast itself. Yosef took another drag on his makeshift cigarette and then tossed it in the dirt. He fixed Peter with a shrewd, friendly glare. Break and strain, he said. It's a good thing for a prince to know about, Peter. Chains break if you put enough of a tug on them, and people do too. Keep it in mind. He did keep it in mind now. As he pulled his first cable, how much of a tug was he putting on it? Five rule? At least ten, perhaps? But maybe it was only wishful thinking. He would say eight. No, seven. Better to make a mistake on the pessimistic side. If a mistake was to be made, if he miscalculated, well, the cobblestones in the plaza of the needle were very, very hard indeed. He tugged harder still, the muscles on his arms now beginning to stand out a little. When the first cable finally snapped, Peter guessed he might be able to apply as much as 15 roll, almost 64 pounds of tug. He was not unhappy with the result. Later that night, he threw the broken cable out of his window. There, the man who cleaned the plaza of the needle daily would sweep it up with the rest of the rubbish the following day. Peter's mother, seeing his interest in the dollhouse and the little furnishings inside, had taught him how to weave cables and braid them into tiny rugs. When we have not done a thing for a long period, though, we are apt to forget exactly how that thing was done. But Peter had nothing but time. And after some experimentation, the trick of braiding came back to him. Braiding was what his mother had called it, and so that was how he thought of it. But braiding is not really the right word for it. A braid, precisely speaking, is hand-weaving of two cables. Wrapping, which is how rugs are made, is the hand-weaving of three or more cables. A wrapping, two cables are placed apart, and then, but with their tops and bottoms even. The third is placed between them but lower, so its end sticks out. This pattern is carried on as length after length is added. The result that looks a bit like a Chinese finger pullers or the braided rugs in your favorite grandmother's house. It took Peter three weeks to save enough threads to try this technique, and almost a fourth to remember exactly how the over and under pattern of wrapping had gone. But when he was done, he had a real rope. It was thin. You would have thought him mad to entrust his weight to it, but it was much stronger than it looked. He found he could break it, 
but only by wrapping its ends firmly around his hands and pulling until the muscles bulged in his arms and his chest and the cords stood out on his neck. Overhead, in his sleeping chamber, were a number of stout oak beams. He would have tested his weight from one of these had the rope been long enough. If it snapped, he would have to start all over again, but such thoughts were useless, and Peter knew it, so he got to work. Each thread he pulled was about 20 inches long, but Peter lost roughly two inches in the weaving and the wrapping. It took him three months to make a rope of three strands, each strands consisting of 105 cotton threads with a cable three feet long. One night, when he was sure all of the warders were drunk and at cards below, he tied this pigtail of a rope over one of the beams. When it had been looped over and tied in a slip knot, less than a foot and a half hung down. It looked woefully thin. Nevertheless, Peter seized it and hung from it, mouth tightened to a grim white line, expecting the threads to let go at any moment. But they held. They held! And finally, hardly daring to believe it was happening, Peter hung there from the rope almost too, too thin to see. He hung there for almost a full minute, and then he stood on his bed, pulled the slipknot free. His hands trembled as he did it, but he had to fumble with the knot twice because his eyes kept blurring with tears. He didn't believe his heart had been so full since reading Ben's tiny note. Chapter 72 He had been keeping the rope under his net mattress, but Peter realized that would not do much longer. The needle was 345 feet high at its peak of its conical roof. His window was just under 300 feet above the cobblestone. He was six feet tall. He believed he could dare drop as much as 20 feet from the end of the rope, but even at best, he would eventually have to hide 270 feet of rope. He discovered a loose stone in the east side of the bedroom floor. He cautiously pried it up. He was surprised and pleased to find a little space beneath couldn't see into it properly, so he reached in and felt around in the darkness, his whole body stiff and tense as he waited for something down there in the dark to crawl over his hand or bite it. Nothing did. And he was just about to withdraw when one of his fingers brushed something, cold and metal. Peter brought it out. It was, he saw, a heart-shaped locket of a fine chain. Both locket and chain looked to be made of gold, nor did he think by its weight that the locket was false gold. After some poking and feeling, he found a delicate catch. He pushed it, and the locket sprung open. And inside were two pictures, one on each side. They were as fine as any of the tiny paintings in Sasha's dollhouse, even finer, perhaps. Peter stared at their faces with a boy's frank wonder. The man was very handsome, and the woman very beautiful. There was a faint smile on the man's lips and a devil-may-care look in his eyes. The woman's eyes were grave and dark, and part of Peter's wonder came from the fact that this locket must have been very old, judging by what he could make of their dress. But only part of it, most of it came from the fact that these two faces looked eerily familiar. He had seen them before. He closed the locket and looked at the back. He thought there were initials entwined there, but... They were too flounced and, and curly-cued for him to read. On impulse, he delved into the hole again. And this time, he touched paper. A short sheet of foolscape he brought out, an ancient and crumbling 
but the writing was clear and the signature unmistakable. The name was Levine Valier, the famous black duke of the southern barony. Valier, who might someday have been king, had instead spent the last 25 years of his life in the room at the top of the needle for the murder of his wife. No wonder the pictures of the locket looked familiar. The man was Valier, the woman Valier's murdered wife, Eleanor, about whose beauty ballads are still sung. The ink Valier had used was a strange, rusty black, and the first line of his note chilled Peter's heart. The note, the note entire chilled his heart, and not only because the similarity between Valier's position and his own seemed too great for coincidence. The note. To the finder of the note, I write with my own blood, drawn from a vein I have opened in my left forearm, my pen, the shaft of a spoon, which I have sharpened long and long upon the stones of my bedchamber. Nearly a quarter of a century I have spent here in the sky. I came here a young man, and now I am old. The coughing spells, the fever, have come on me again, and this time I think I shall not survive. I did not kill my wife. Nay, though all the evidence says otherwise, I did not kill my wife. I did love her. I love her still, although her, her dear face has grown misty in my treacherous mind. I believe t'was the king's magician who killed Eleanor and arranged matters to see me put aside, for I stood in his way. It seems his plans have worked, and he has prospered. Yet I believe there are gods who punish wickedness in the end. His day shall come, and I have come to feel more and more strongly as my own death approaches that he shall be brought down by one who comes to this palace of despair, one who finds and reads this letter written in my blood. If tis so, I cry out to you, Avenge! 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 Ignore me and my lost years if you must, but never, 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 Ignore my dear Eleanor, murdered as she slept in her bed. It was not I who poisoned her wine. I write the name of the murderer here in blood. Flag. T'was flag. 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 Take the locket. Show it to him the instant before you relieve this world of its greatest scoundrel. And show him so that he may know in the instant that I have been a part of his downfall even from beyond my unjust murderer's grave, Levine Valier. Perhaps now you can understand the true source of Peter's chill. Perhaps not. Perhaps you will understand it better if I remind you that although he looked to be a man of hale and hearty middle-aged, Flagg was really very old. Peter had read what was supposed crime of Laverne Valier, yes, but the books in which he had read it were histories, ancient histories. This crumbling yellowed parchment first spoke of a king's magician and then spoke of flag by name. Spoke his name? Cried it, shrieked it in blood. But that Valier's supposed crime had happened in the reign of Alan II. Alan II had ruled Delane 450 years ago. God, oh great God, Peter whispered. He staggered back to his bed and he sat down on it heavily just before his knees would have unhinged and spilled him to the floor. He's done it all before, 
He's done it before in exactly the same way, but he did it over four centuries ago? How? Peter's face was deadly white. His hair was standing on end. For the first time, he realized that Flag, the king's magician, was in reality Flag, the monster, loosened to lane again, now serving a new king, serving his own young, confused, easily led brother. Chapter 73. Peter at first entertained giddy thoughts of promising Beeson another bribe to take the locket and the crumbling sheet of foolscape to Anders Pena. In his initial flush of excitement, it seemed to him that this note must point the finger of guilt at flag and set him, Peter, free. A little reflection convinced him that while that might happen in a storybook, it would not happen in real life. Pena would laugh at it, call it a forgery. And if he took it seriously, that might mean the end of both Judge General and the imprisoned prince. Peter's ears were sharp, and he listened closely to the gossip in the meat houses and the wine shops as it was passed back and forth between Beeson and the lesser warders. He had heard of the farmer's tax increase, had heard the bitter joke which suggested Tom and Thomas the Lightbringer should be renamed Thomas the Taxbringer. He had even heard that some few daring wags had renamed his brother Foggy Tom the Constantly Bombed. The headsman's axe had swung with the regularity of a clock's pendulum since Thomas had ascended to Delane's throne. Only this clock called out treason, sedition, treason, sedition, treason, sedition, with a regularity that would have been monotonous had it not been so frightening. By now, Peter had begun to suspect Flagg's goal, to bring the ordered monarchy of Delane to an utter smash. Showing the locket and the note would only get him laughed at or cause Pena to take some sort of action, and that would undoubtedly get them both killed. In the end, Peter put the locket and the foolscap back where they had come from, and with them he put the little three-foot pigtail he had taken him a month to weave. On the whole, he did not feel too bitter about the evening's work. The rope had held, the finding of the locket and the foolscape after more than 400 years proved at least one thing. The hiding place was not apt to be discovered. Still, he had much food for thought, and he lay long awake that night. When he slept, he seemed to hear Levine's, Levine Valliere's dry, stony voice whispering in one ear, Avenge! 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 Chapter 74 time. Yes, time. Peter had spent a great deal of time at the top of the needle. His beard grew long, save for where the white scars streaked his cheek like a lightning bolt. He saw many changes from his window as he grew. He heard of more terrible changes yet. The headsman's pendulum had not slowed down, but actually sped up. Treason, sedition, treason, sedition, it sang. And sometimes half a dozen heads rolled in the course of but a single day. During Peter's third year of imprisonment, the year in which Peter was first able to do 30 chin-ups in a single effort from his bedchamber's central beam, Pena resigned his post as Judge General in disgust. It was the talk in the meat houses and the wine shops for a week, and the talk of Peter's keeper for a week after that. The warders believed that Flag, 
would have Pena jailed almost before the heat of the old man's bum had left the judge's bench, and that soon after the citizens of Delane would find out once and for all if there were blood or ice water in the judge general's veins. But when Pena remained free, the talk died down. Peter was glad Pena had not been arrested. He bore him no ill will, in spite of Pena's willingness to believe that he had murdered his father, and he knew that the arrangement of the evidence had been Flagg's doing. Also, during, Peter, during Peter's third year in the needle, Dennis Goodall Dobb Brandon died. His passing was simplified, but dignity, with dignity. He had finished his day's work in spite of a terrible pain in his chest and his side and came slowly home. He sat down in the little living room, hoping the pain would pass. Instead, it grew worse. He called his wife and his son to his side, kissed them both, asked if he might have a glass of bundled gin. This was provided. He drank it, kissed his wife again, and then sent her from the room. You must serve your master well now, Dennis, he said. You're a man now, with a man's task set before you. I'll serve the king as well as... as well as I may, Doc, Dennis said, almost crying. Although he thought of taking over his father's responsibility terrified him, his good, homely face was shining with tears. For the last three years, Dennis and Brandon had buttled for Thomas, and Dennis' responsibilities had been much the same as before with Peter, but it had never been the same somehow, never even close to the same. Thomas, I, Brandon said, then he whispered, but if the time comes to do your first master a service, you mustn't hesitate. I have never... At that moment, Brandon clutched the left side of his chest, he stiffened, and he died. He died where he would have wanted to die, in his own chair, in front of his own fire, with his own family. In Peter's fourth year of imprisonment, his rope below the stones Growing steadily longer and longer, the Stodd family disappeared. The throne possessed itself of what little there was remaining of their land, as it had done with other noble families disappeared. And as Thomas' reign progressed, there were more and more disappearances. The Stodds were only one item of Meadhouse gossip in a busy week that included four beheadings, an increased levy against the shopkeepers, and the imprisonment of an old woman, who had for three days walked back and forth in front of the palace, screaming that her grandson had been taken and tortured for speaking against the previous year's cattle levies. When Peter heard the Stad's name in the warder's conversation, his heart stopped for a moment. The chain of events leading to the disappoint disappearance of the Stads was one familiar to everyone in Delane by now. The tick-tocking pendulum of the headsman's axe had thinned the numbers of nobility terribly, Many of these nobles died because their families had served the kingdom for hundreds or thousands of years, and they could not believe such an unjust fate would or could fall on them. Others, seeing bloody handwriting on the wall, fled. The Stads were among these, and the whispering began. Tales were told behind cupped hands, tales suggesting these nobles had not simply scattered to the four winds, but were gathering together somewhere, perhaps in the deep woods in the northern end of the kingdom, to plan an overthrow of the throne. These stories passed to Peter like the wind through the window, the drifts and drafts beneath the door. They were dreams of a wider world. 
Mostly, he worked on his rope. During the first year, the rope grew longer by 18 inches every three weeks. At the end of that year, he had a slim cable with about 25 feet long. A cable that was, theoretically at least, strong enough to bear his weight. But there was a difference between dangling from a beam in his bedroom and dangling above a drop of 300 feet. Peter knew it. He was quite literally staking his life on that slim cord. And 25 feet a year was perhaps not enough. It would take more than eight years before they could even try, and, and the rumblings he heard at second hand had grown loud enough to be disturbing. Above all else, the kingdom must endure. There must be no revolt, no chaos. Wrongs would be put right, but by law, not by bows and slings and maces and clubs. Thomas, Levine, Valliere, Rowland, Rowland, he himself, even Flag, paled into insignificance next to that. There must be law. How Anders Pena, growing old and bitter by his fire, would have loved him for that. Peter determined that he must make his effort to escape as soon as possible. Accordingly, he made long calculations during doing the figures in his head so as to leave no trace. He did them again and again and again, proving to himself that he had made no mistake. In his second year in the needle, he began to pluck ten threads from each napkin. In the third year, fifteen. In the fourth year, twenty. The rope grew. Fifty-eight feet long after the second year, hundred and four after the third, and a hundred and sixty after the fourth. The rope at that time would still have fetched up 140 feet from the ground. And during this last year, Peter began to take 30 threads from each napkin. And for the first time, his robbery showed clearly. Each napkin looked frayed on all four sides as if mice had been at it. Peter waited in agony for his thefts to be discovered. Chapter 75 But they were not discovered then or ever. There was not so much as a question ever raised. Peter had spent endless nights, or so they seemed to him, wondering and worrying when Flag would hear some wrong thing, some wrong note, and so get wind of what he was up to. He would send some underling, Peter supposed, and the questions would begin. Peter had thought things out with agonizing care, and it had made only one wrong assumption, but that one led to a second as wrong assumptions often do. And that second was a dilly. He had assumed that there was a finite number of napkins, perhaps a thousand or so in all, and that they were being used over and over again. His thinking on the subject of the napkin supply never went much further than that. Dennis could have told him differently and saved him perhaps two years of work. But Dennis was never asked. And the truth was simple but staggering. Peter's napkins were not coming from a supply of 1,000 or 2,000 or 20,000. There were nearly half a million of these old, musty napkins in all. On one of the deep levels below the castle in a storeroom as big as a ballroom, there were napkins everywhere. Napkins and nothing but napkins. They smelled musty to Peter, and that wasn't surprising. Most of them, coincidentally or not, dated from a time not long after the imprisonment and death of Laverne Valliere, and the existence of all those napkins, coincidentally or not, was indirectly, at least, the work of Flag. 
in a queer sort of way, he had created them. Those had been dark times indeed for Delane. The chaos flag so earnestly wished had almost come upon the land. Valier had been removed. Mad King Alan ascended the throne in his place. If he had lived another ten years, the kingdom surely would have drowned in blood. But Alan was struck down by lightning while playing cubits in a back lawn in the pouring rain one day. As I told you, he was mad. It was lightning, some said, sent by the gods themselves. He was followed by his niece, Kayla, who became known as Kayla the Good. And from Kayla, the line of succession had run straight and true down through the generations to Roland and the brother to whose tale you have been listening. It was Kayla the, the Good Queen who brought the land out of its darkness and poverty. She had nearly bankrupted the royal treasury to do it, but she knew that currency, hard currency, is the life's blood of a kingdom. Much of Delane's hard currency had been drained away during the wild, weird reign of Alan II, a king who sometimes drunk blood from the notched ears of his servants, who had, he had insisted could fly, a king more interested in magic and necromancy than profit and loss in the welfare of his people. Kayla knew it would take a massive flow of both love and gilders to set the wrongs of Alan's reign right. She began by trying to put every able-bodied person in Delane back to work, from the eldest to the youngest. Many of the older citizens of the castle keep had been set to making napkins. Not because napkins were needed, I think I already told you about how most of Delane's royalty and nobility felt about them, but because work was needed. These were hands that had been idle for 20 years or more in some cases, and they worked with a will weaving on looms exactly like the one in Sasha's dollhouse, except in the matter of size, of course. For 10 years, these old people, over a thousand of them, made napkins and drew hard coin from Kayla's treasury for their work. For 10 years, people only slightly younger and a little more able to get about had taken them down to the cool, dry storeroom below the castle. Peter had noticed that some of the napkins brought to him were moth-eaten, as well as musty smelling. He wondered, although he didn't know it, was that so many of them were still in such fine condition. Dennis could have told him about the napkin, where the napkins were and how they were used once, removed, minus the threads Peter plucked from each, and then simply thrown away. After all, why not? There were enough of them, all told to last 500 princes, 500 years and longer. If Anders Pena had not been a merciful man, as well as a hard one, there really might have been a finite number of napkins. But he knew how badly that nameless woman in the rocking chair needed to work, and the pittance it brought in good Kayla had known the same. So he kept her on. As he continued to see the Beeson's guilders went on flowing after the Stads were forced to flee. She became became a fixture outside the room of the napkins, that old woman with her needle for unmaking rather than making. There she sat in her rocker year after year, removing tens of thousands of royal crests. And so it was really not surprising that no word of Peter's petty thievery ever reached Flagg's ears. So you see that except for one mistaken assumption and one unasked question, Peter could have gotten his work much faster. He did sometimes think to him that the napkins were not shrinking as rapidly as they ought to have done, but it never occurred to him to question his basic 
if vague idea that the napkins he used were being regularly returned to him. If he had asked himself that one simple question, but perhaps in the end all worked for the best, or perhaps not, that is another thing you will have to decide for yourself.